Hello, everyone, and welcome to On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health, and with me, as always, are my fellow Associate Editors, Kevin Drewley and Barry Bettino. This is our September 2022 episode, number 31, if you're keeping score at home, wherever or however you're listening today, we thank you for spending some time with us. This episode is being released a few days before the 2022 NSC Safety Congress and Expo in San Diego, California. We look forward to seeing everyone, old friends and new friends, once again. We know that many of you have had a unique journey into the safety profession, and we want to hear more about it for our My Story feature in our magazine. We invite you and your colleagues to submit your personal stories about how you got into safety by emailing us at safehealth@nsc.org. You can view past My Story entries and catch up on other news from around the safety world on our website, safetyandhealthmagazine.com. In this month's episode, Kevin will take us on a deep dive into his feature story on how to create volunteer first aid response teams at your workplace. We'll also be joined by Sean Galloway to talk about worker engagement and buy-in. And a big thank you to our September episode sponsor, Bulwark FR. You can learn all about them online at bulwark.com slash wearefr. And the three of us will share an important item that we learned this month, either on the job or away from work. Is everybody ready? Let's go. Each month here at On the Safe Side, we take a look at a feature story from the latest issue of Safety and Health magazine, which we call our Deep Dive segment. In the September issue, Kevin has a feature story about workplaces with volunteer first aid response teams to assist workers in need of help before emergency medical services arrive. Kevin, would you dip your toe in the water and prepare to make a big splash with this deep dive? Certainly, and thank you, Barry, for the the kind introduction. Uh, Before we do plunge into this latest deep dive, whether we imagine San Diego Bay or the Pacific or any other body of water, uh, it does bear mentioning that I indirectly had you, Alan, and several other NSC cohorts on the brain while writing this feature, So don't worry, it wasn't for anything morbid. Um, Because two sources have longstanding and or current ties to the council, in addition to the expertise of our editor uh, and former NSC volunteer first aid response team member, Melissa Raminsky, it was very easy to imagine our one-time floor plan and the overall response protocol here at World Headquarters. And I can say World Headquarters because we are uh, recording together today for the first time since episode one. Um, As for the story, We all know that workplace medical emergencies can take many forms, whether it's feeling shortness of breath or experiencing a diabetic emergency, a fracture, or even a machine-related amputation. So that precious time between when an incident occurs and when emergency medical services arrive on the scene are crucial. So the story then examines the steps that some organizations take in forming a volunteer workplace first response team to assist during that gap. And by extension, just outlining um, steps that organizations interested in in doing this can can take. So the tasks are going to vary. Um, Obviously, it might be administering first aid, as the title of the team would suggest, or maybe you're collecting vital signs and other information to provide when the paramedics arrive on the scene. Perhaps it's also assisting with crowd control in order to provide privacy and space to the distressed employee while coworkers offer assistance and certainly that's going to vary just given return to work policies of, of various places. At any rate, though, the work of these teams is vital and it can be performed by anyone who has a willingness to assist and learn. And that's really the, the definition of a volunteer, I guess. 
Rob Rayberg, who is NSC's former director of first aid training and program development, has what I think is a pretty poignant quote in the story, and that's that you don't have to be a trained medical professional to save somebody's life. So, Kevin, where can an employer thinking about establishing one of these teams begin when putting a plan into action? Well, both Rob Rayberg and Emily Prentice, who's a senior researcher at NSC, who's led the council's volunteer first first aid response team, uh, both of them highlighted the importance of first gauging your organization. So with that, employers should consider a number of things. Um, and, and a few of them outlined in the story and, and just from Rob and Emily were these. Uh, how many employees do you have? What's the size of your facility? How far is your location from emergency services? Where are first aid kits and defibrillators stored? Uh, which illnesses and injuries are common to your industry? Uh, Rayberg had said that while organizing a team, quote, is not rocket science, unquote, there also is no cookie cutter approach given the different sizes and needs of facilities and campuses. Um, one of the asides that he often used um, both in talking and he had shared it with a, a PowerPoint presentation from um, talks he's given on the matter was, you know, comparing a deli to a warehouse. It just that really drove it home for him. Um, just again, in illustrating that things are going to be different depending on the workplace. Um, but once you have answered those questions and assessed everything and you're getting a, a more firm grasp on, on the answers, you then can work on developing what, what he really called the bedrock to, to all this. And that's just the venue-specific incident response plan, which you can then include as the part of your organization's comprehensive emergency response plan. So this plan should include attributes such as uh, creating floor plans that display the locations of team members, um, also the locations of AED and first aid kits, and then a, a list also of responsibilities and methods for reporting incidents and emergencies. And here again, we're when writing, reporting, interviewing, transcribing was where the kind of the visions of NSC protocol kind of came to mind. Just um, it's been some time since everyone here was in the office, but I'm sure, you know, Alan Barry and I all can can attest to just to, to how it was handled. And um, things certainly have changed in those years, as, as Rob attests, where even the notification protocol now there are are mobile apps that notify the team members versus um, making an announcement over the PA, which then might not just get people frenzied, but certainly tip others. And, and that's something that we'll talk about shortly here is, is crowd control. And, you know, certainly it's one thing to have in-house communication, but then when others over the, the PA might hear something, again, there might be that, that added urgency. But we're, we're talking about these, these steps and, and protocols without um, paying yet much lip service to actually bringing members aboard to, to starting teams. So really to, to do that, what, what Rob and, and Emily and others had said, first harkens back about Rob's quote about not needing to be a trained professional to save someone's life. Um, so again, volunteer is, is the operative word, which I know we've said a couple of times and, and also is repeated in the story, but it, it is volunteer. Um, so the members of these in-house first aid teams, they're our coworkers. They're the folks we see in the halls or the lunchroom. And when we see them, unless it's Halloween, they're not going to be wearing OR scrubs. So they're, they're people, again, who are receiving this this training, often free of charge. That's how the council does it, I know. But again, they are not medical professionals. They're, they're our colleagues. So Emily um, had found it helpful to reiterate that is really as long as you have a passion for assisting others, you can be trained. You might have to poke around and people may have different responses as they would to 
any question or, or any proposition, but really, really, she said a little interest can go a long way. A quote from Emily related to this, she said, what we really focused on was we wanted to make sure that everyone felt like they were empowered to be a workplace first responder, regardless of medical training, or even if they were afraid of an injury or illness. And just, you know, kind of drove that home in, in adding that we wanted to make them feel empowered to know that you can still help others, even if you don't like certain things. And with that, she means, you know, again, a moment ago, we kind of mentioned the gamut of what what a workplace incident can be. It could be someone feeling short of breath, but it could be something a little bit more urgent, you know, whether you're in a warehouse setting or and it's an amputation, that kind of thing. So those are some of the questions that, that you're asking when you're talking to folks about their interest in this. Are there certain scenarios, incidents, sights, sounds, smells that you're just plain uncomfortable with? And you know, that doesn't mean that that person is disqualified, but maybe it means that you have them performing a different kind of duty or just case specific as, as things happen. Again, as mentioned, this this training is, is crucial. NSC um, offers, you know, complete free training that covers first aid, um, AED, and stop the bleed, which teaches uh, how to curb bleeding that results from injury. And I know there's retraining and just the practical application element of training where it's one thing just to to be in a class or in these days, a, a Zoom course, but it's another just to, to demonstrate that you can do these skills in, in real time. So it's just a matter, again, of organizations assessing, you know, putting that into action, also just the, the budget and, and things like that. Again, mentioned crowd control um, a moment ago, and that's another point of emphasis, excuse me, emphasis from the experts who spoke for the story. Um, really, you know, kind of being empathetic, putting yourself in that person's shoes. So should an incident occur, of course, it's going to be human nature for the folks who aren't necessarily part of the volunteer first aid response team to want to know what's going on, especially if it's a friend or it's a close colleague who is the one in distress. But, um, you know, the experts who spoke for the story, again, heightened that, that empathy and the idea of would you want your personal business being bandied about the office? So um, just really they're encouraging and, and asking co- that coworkers um, just try not to be as, as curious or just, again, to, to be respectful, to, to not be there on the scene when something is happening. Um, and again, just to direct any questions to the safety director or the human resources director at the organization. To that end, Emily had said, quote, at the end of the day, we need to let EMS, on-staff medical or volunteer first aid responders do what they were trained to do and give them that respect. Kevin, the ANSI-IC standard Z308.1, which OSHA cites as a recommended non-mandatory source of guidance for minimum first aid requirements, it was was recently revised. Um, what should our listeners know about what's new in that standard? Well, sure. Uh, to start, this is the first update to this standard since 2015, and it was approved April 15th. And as we record today, it's set to go into effect on October the 15th. Um, there's a handful of highlights uh, with that. First, uh, the update offers more specificity for tourniquets, which are intended to prevent blood loss. Um, we'll try not to get too nitty gritty because we'll we mentioned this in the story and, and know um, it can be found online. But the specifications, for instance, is that tourniquets should be at least one and a half inches wide and be effective for limb sizes seven uh, to thirty three inches around. Another thing is that foil blankets now are mandatory, and that measure was taken after the Standard Update Committee had analyzed some similar international standards and observed the multiple functions that foil blankets can serve in first aid emergency response. 
Also, there's further guidance on bleeding control kits, as well as guidance on incorporating what is called a, quote, more robust discussion, unquote, to assist employers when assessing risks and potential hazards when it comes to selecting additional first aid supplies. So the standard itself offers some some specific prompts for employers to consider, and those include uh, asking what are the potential hazards, what kind of injuries have occurred or could occur in relation to these hazards, and what types of first aid supplies are needed to treat these injuries. As a reminder, IC encourages employers uh, to inspect the first aid kits at least monthly or following a first aid incident in which supplies or products from the kits are used. Uh, and then also on, on that note, uh, cabinet services should be disinfected regularly for the first aid kits in your workplaces. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for your work on this story. To our listeners, please feel free to check out Kevin's first aid response team article or other topics and news from around the safety world in our September issue of Safety and Health magazine, which you can find online at www.safetyandhealthmagazine.com. This podcast is sponsored by Bulwark FR. We'd like to tell you, in our 50 years of leading the flame-resistant apparel industry, we've walked in your workers' boots. We know the grit and gravel and the light of a diesel dawn. We've seen fewer safety write-ups and more workers loving their FR. We are every lineman's climb in a crisis. We are every Derek Hand's smearing of pipe dope. We are every electrician's light bulb moment. With you, for you, we are FR. CY at bulwark.com slash we are FR. Enhancing worker engagement and getting buy-in for safety is paramount at workplaces across the globe, but sometimes that's no easy task. And our guest today knows that well. With us to talk about worker engagement and safety is Sean Galloway, the CEO of ProAct Safety and one of our most popular speakers at our upcoming Congress and Expo in San Diego this month. Sean, thank you so much for joining us on The Safe Side. Hi, team. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Sean, where we wanted to start with you today was, first of all, how does worker engagement and buy-in impact safety at an organization? That question reminds me of an old quote by Henry Ford where he said, why is it every time I ask for a pair of hands, a brain comes attached? If you think about it, in the early 1900s, when we looked at workforce engagement, we didn't really want people to think about it. It's more do as you're told, that theory X, Y, if you will. When you look at engagement and how it impacts safety, allow me to unpack that a little bit. Safety is really three things. There's a lot of complexity to safety, not trying to minimize it, yet it really is three things. It's knowing the risks knowing what precautions to take, and then regularly taking those precautions. So if we need engagement, if we need buy-in, that means we need thinking individuals. We need them to be able to identify what those risks are. Now we've kind of rebranded the types of risks that I've always called big risks as the serious injury, serious incident, fatality, the SIF risks, those things that if you take that risk one time, could severely alter your or end your life. But then there's also a lot of common risks, like we try to address with behavioral approaches, like don't put any part of your body where your eyes haven't previously scanned. So we need workers engaged. It's the example we use in ProAct about what can a master at chess do that an amateur cannot, aside from when, of course. And the answer is to see, to predict, to think multiple moves ahead. 
Now, in some highly regulated industry, we want to proceduralize everything, but we still don't want people to mindlessly comply. So people need to be thinking, what are the hazards? What are the risks, the different types associated with the task that I'm performing? So we want thinking people. And then it's what precautions are necessary. So some precautions we put into place as far as engineering and administrative controls. Like we don't say pretty please lockout, tagout. That, that's something that we need to make sure occurs consistently. But then there's also precautions that are at the discretion or voluntary of a worker for us to improve and impact safety. So there's obviously management leadership responsibility, but there's responsibility on the person that's close to the sharp end of the stick to make sure that they're identifying, thinking a few moves ahead, but also knowing what precautions are within their control to take. And then as an organization, what are we doing to ensure those precautions, those controls are being put in place and taken every single time? I want to also, if you'll allow me to address impacting safety. So then we focus a lot with our clients and a lot of the stuff we put out there in, in the safety industry about the pursuit of excellence and safety and excellence is four things. One is the ability to get and repeat great results. Now, a lot of organizations, thankfully, are moving away from that focus on zero injuries because they know the problems with that. But they start, there's still going to be some accountability, at least over the next 10, 15 years, where that incident rate's going to be part of the conversation. But the second part is knowing precisely how we've achieved those results. If we have great performance and can't point to why, need to work to manage the luck out. The third part in my model is that we have confidence in our system capacity to prevent, but also confidence in our system capacity to recover. Mistakes are normal in complex environments. So if we have a deviation from an expected outcome, we have systems that kick in that allow us to recover. But then the fourth part where engagement is and buy-in is critical is we have to have a mindset that exists throughout the organization regardless of how well we're performing, we can always be better. And when I work directly with organizations, and I would encourage listeners of this to have this conversation within their groups, within their workforce, can we identify and can we list practices that 10 years ago we used to view as acceptable practices that today we view as unacceptable? Of of course we can. And that's because all progress begins by thinking differently. So we need engagement close to the sharp end of the stick to help us understand where things might deviate or where it's not possible to put the controls or take the precautions. But also we need it on the other end as well, that we never stop this pursuit of continuously trying to be better and better at safety. Sean, what are some hurdles or challenges to getting worker buy-in? I I love the statement. You can't ask somebody to buy into something until they've had the opportunity to weigh in on that something. And when you look at us trying to get worker buy-in, that means we're trying to do something different. So we're trying to change. We teach that force change is almost always temporary because when you and the force go away, so does the change. So we want buy-in and we want this engagement. But one of the biggest hurdles is we haven't really defined what we want. And engagement is what's referred to as a concept called a blur word or a blur phrase. Engagement can mean a lot of different things to many different people. I I remember, gosh, 10, 12 years ago, 
at a group of executives in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we were discussing the overall strategy over the next few years for EHS, for environmental health and safety. And one of the key areas they wanted to focus on was greater employee engagement. And just during breaks throughout the day, I was asking the top seven people in this of this leadership team, define engagement. If you had more of it, what would that look like? Define engagement. I received five distinctly different responses from the top seven people. So one of the biggest hurdles is us not being clear on what we want when it comes to engagement. But specifically with buy-in, a lot of changes occur or changes are communicated without explaining the rationale. And I believe it's John Cotter's work out of Harvard. He says there's three things that trigger resistance to change. So thus that would look like people not buying into where we're going or what we're trying to focus on. And the research shows that number one, because they don't understand the change, so we haven't done a good job communicating. Number two and number three are interesting because number two is they don't like the change. And number three, they don't like the person bringing the change. So that also shows that we humans respond emotionally to change before we respond logically to change. So we can give the logic, but if we're not paying attention to that very famous radio station, WIIFM, what's in it for me, then we're not going to get that buy-in. But if we want engagement, buy-in is the first step to that, but there's two more for engagement. We teach it's buy-in, participation, and ownership. My partner who just retired, a founder of our of our firm, Product Safety, Terry Mathis, when I first met him, he used to ask at some of the conferences like National Safety Council, if you had to wash, or you know, I'm sorry, he would ask, how often do you wash in detail your rental car? Usually we'd get a few laughs from the audience, but he would follow up with, well, why not? And the answer is because it's not yours. And I told him afterwards when I first heard this, that I just got back from working up in northern Alberta and the oil sands. And in the wintertime, it's a, it's a pretty dirty environment. But I got up one morning after my car being plugged in to keep the radiator warm, and I cleaned off the windshield. I cleaned off the headlights because there wasn't enough light that could push through with how dirty it was. I did the minimal necessary just to get by. And we see that in a lot of organizations when you don't have that buy-in. People do the minimal necessary just to get by but also what people do when the boss isn't looking as a part of everyone's organization. So if they don't understand the why behind what we're doing, if they feel as though that they don't have a voice in it, that it sees how it benefits them, uh, that that's one of, I think those are the big hurdles and potholes is not clearly defining what it is that you want, but also then clearly communicating why we want this and how it's going to benefit the individuals. Sean, where should safety pros start when wanting to drive more engagement? There's a three-step process we teach to that, and it's based on the performance sciences. And it's number one, identify and neutralize where possible the demotivators. Then number two, you add motivators. And then number three, you reward or recognizing, recognize those that have gone above and beyond, not just doing what's necessary. We have a joke in our company that most people wake up motivated, they come to work and it gets beaten out of them throughout the day. So a lot of times if we want more, we need to make sure that we're identifying the demotivators, uh, but also are we doing things that might actually disengage the very people 
whose engagement we need to be successful. So a lot of it is we have to look at what are we currently doing that might be actually demotivating people. I'll give you an example. An old friend of mine is in the financial leadership team of one of the major oil and gas companies based here in Houston, where I live. And many years ago, they were doing a team building exercise and they decided to go bowling. That's what they chose. So they went across the highway. They were all gathering there, shaking hands, meeting people sometimes for the first time together as a team. And before they went to go pick out their bowling ball, they were promptly stopped and said, wait, before you go pick out that bowling ball, I need you to first sit down and fill out a job safety analysis form. Now, Several of the listeners of this and me, I'm sure, could argue the virtues of a job safety analysis form before choosing your polling ball. But if we're doing things that people don't see value in, we end up with a culture of have to, not a culture of want to. So what we teach and where do we start to try to drive more engagement, it's identify and neutralize those demotivators. Some of them, for example, are constant change. And in a lot of companies seems today that change is the only thing that's constant, but also withholding information intentionally or otherwise, if they feel as though they're on that kind of need to know basis and they're perceived as not needing to know, uh, hypocrisy is another demotivator or dishonesty or, or unfairness. One of the big ones though is unproductive or non-value added activities. Back to that JSA example, I've seen a demotivator be internal competition, putting shifts versus shifts or teams versus team versus we're all one team at this location. Uh, I see lack of follow-up is a constant demotivator, uh, even if it's unintentional. That's why we ask the question, what are we doing intentionally or unintentionally that might be demotivating people? I see in my travels and work all over the world, a lot of what I call black hole safety systems. So information goes in and just disappears. Or we ask people to do these audits, these inspections, these observations, fill out these checklists or forms, and they feel as though nothing is done with it. So it's either their information is being withheld or there's no follow-up. You want us to report suggestions and concerns. I've done so. Three months have gone by. Nobody's done anything about it. But there's also over-control, and that's a big demotivator. There's only one way to do it. And if any of us listening to this have worked for enough companies, at some point you've had a micromanager. And when you have somebody that's micromanaging, you feel over-controlled, you don't have that autonomy. People tend to do the minimal necessary just to get by. And then finally, ignoring input. So what we recommend to answer this question is first identify and neutralize the demotivators. Then you can add the motivators in like input and ownership and involvement and scorekeeping and teamwork. But I recommend first try to identify what might we need to stop doing that might be getting in our own way. What role can and should company leaders play in this process, Sean? So engagement and safety is critical if we're going to be great at safety. Just like quality, reliability, customer service, people need to do more than just what's necessary to collect a paycheck and go home. Even in safety, we've been asking the question for years, can our employees obey all the rules, follow all the procedures, wear all their personal protective equipment, and still get injured? The answer is always yes. So there's more that falls outside of general duty clause. There's more that falls outside of regulatory compliance or company compliance. So that means 
leaders need to be involved. And if safety really is to become a core value, not a situational value, but a core value in the organization, you can't delegate something that's a core value. So it can't be the safety leader or the EHS team's responsibility. It has to be operationalized in line leadership from the top all the way down to that first line or frontline leader. But that means people need to see their role in it. I'm going to come back to the role in it. It also has to be a part of the business strategy. And sometimes the safety strategy is we just want incremental improvement because that's all we can afford. That's just practically our reality. Others, safety in some organization, it's a competitive advantage to them, or at least they want to be perceived as fantastic in safety because it helps with hiring and retention and also business continuity and getting more business. So the safety strategy has to be a part of the business strategy. It has to support the trajectory of growth within the firm, whether it's organic hiring or whether it's acquisition. So safety needs to be a part of those considerations. So that means the, the leadership have to determine what is it that we want and how do we operationalize what we want throughout the organization so the leaders are leading safety, not the safety leaders. But back on the roles and responsibilities, I'll never forget, this was quite a while back, but I was called into an organization that they were coming up on a few months without I'm sorry, they're a few months away from celebrating three years without a recordable. Now, again, you can argue the, the pros and cons of doing those types of things. But the shock to the system, the shock to the company was months away from the celebration of supervisors going down from within the facility and he hears a squeaky sound. Now, this is a, uh, this is a location that has bargaining unit representation. So part of the union contract is supervisors are not supposed to put their hands on the tools. They're supposed to direct the work. Well, the supervisor goes and grabs some sort of oil can, opens an access door, bypassing lockout tagout, and to listen in and hear where the sound is coming from, he placed his hand on this metal rod. And unfortunately, when this metal rod moved abruptly, it severed four fingers in his left hand. And I was called in by this organization because it was a shock is they wanted me to look across the organization at their strategy, their systems, their culture. You know, is this, is this just one mistake that was made or is this a bigger issue that we need to look at? Well, I was sitting there as the president flew in the other location managers and he did a supervisor stand down. The injured party was still in the hospital at this time. And mind you, they're they're for what they perceive is very good in safety for what they perceive. So I'm sitting over in the corner and I'm watching this thing unfold. The president's leadership style isn't my preferred one, but he's admonishing the group of supervisors. Don't you know what you're supposed to do? Don't you know what you're not supposed to do? And I watched as this individual, I later wrote a piece about him. He stood up and I called him a brave supervisor, but he stood up and he said to the president of the company, when being asked about know what you're supposed to do, not supposed to do, he stood up and said, respectfully, sir, I don't think that has been made clear to us. And I watched the president look to his left at the row of the other location managers and kind of gruff to them, is that true? And I watched several of them shrug their shoulders as to say, I'm not sure. So then the brave supervisor stood back up again and said, again, respectfully, sir, if you all don't know, how are we supposed to know? And it started a really good conversation. So 
to answer that question, which I believe what, what role should company leaders play, they have to have, have what we call safety RRRs. And no, that's not pirate speak. It's roles, responsibilities, and results. The role is more how you're perceived. The responsibility has to be behaviorally defined. And the result is what's the yield, what's the outcome. So they need to be involved both strategically in setting the plan, the roadmap, but also tactically, because even down to that frontline leader, the most important person in an organization, I believe, to effectively shape performance in any category and overall culture is also the most undertrained, under-resourced, and underutilized individual. And that's that frontline supervisor. So the company leaders need to equip, they need to invest in their people leaders at all levels of the organization, especially those closest to the risk that's being faced out there in the operation. So what can make engagement and buy-in so elusive? Well, now, at the time of this recording, the attrition levels have spiked in so many different organizations. We don't really have a lot of pensions left in organizations. We don't really have a lot of models and methodology to, to keep our talent here. So you've got people that are coming and going. You've got people that no longer have company careers within organizations like, like we used to. So that's one of the things that, you know, people, some even only plan to stay with an organization, even at a staff level for a few years, just to get some experience and then move around. But it comes down to really, and we're not investing in the people like we should be. And it's what a lot of my clients focus on supporting the whole person. So it's not just occupational safety and feeling as though that the company and the leaders truly care about preventing injuries. It's also creating a psychologically safe environment to where we can have conversations. It's safe to bring up concerns and it's what I call strong signals versus weak signals. And there's a lot of mixed messaging in an organization you'll have one leader that's focusing on the importance of this, but another leader that's focusing on something else. And it goes back to that defining engagement or even more specifically defining what does success look like in safety beyond just the absence of injuries and incidents. That, that's the absence. What's the presence of? What would we see here? What would explain why we have no injuries? We need to focus on getting more of what we want versus distancing ourselves from what we don't want. But one of the big things I think that makes it so difficult is a lot of companies don't really have an effective strategy about how to perceive about how to pursue it, how to go after and get more engagement. So they haven't defined what they want. They haven't assessed the customers, the consumers, the real problem solvers in safety. And those are the people close to the sharp end of the stick, close to the dangers. So we're not communicating effectively like we should be. We're not out there coaching like we should be. I see a lot of companies where coaching is a dirty word in a company. Coaching is something that's done to somebody when they screw up. No, coaching is about helping our people perform to the best of their ability every time, everywhere. So you have a worker that doesn't feel as though that the organization really cares about them. It provides some autonomy to make some of their own decisions to Dan Pink wrote, the, wrote about this, and he was one of your keynote speakers several years ago at the National Safety Council Congress and Expo when he talked about autonomy, mastery, and purpose, that that's the surprising science about how you really get motivation and people engaged at work. We're not focusing on that. A lot of companies are. We're moving towards that, 
we're moving towards that with with the generation that's that's coming into the workforce that they want a little bit more feedback. They want to feel as though the company is invested in them. It is invested in society and the environment and everything else. But I think really practically it comes down to there's no specific plan. There's no described priorities and actions that we're taking. There's no roles and responsibilities at all levels of the organization on how to increase engagement. And then there's very little metrics and measurements that tell us, are we going in the right direction? It tells us the efficacy of our plan is what we're doing really working. And it goes back to, do people buy into, are there opportunities to participate? I can't tell you how many examples I have of clients where they've, they've expressed the desire for more engagement but I find there's only one team to join and there's very little rotation. So there's really nothing else to participate in aside from what's already required of them. And some employees feel I am engaged. I'm reporting their misses. I'm talking about, you know, I express suggestions and nobody does anything with it. So we're not actively seeking out what those demotivators are and neutralizing them. So to me, it goes back to there's no real strategy. Well, Sean, we thank you so much for your time and and for sharing your insights with us on this topic. It was great to have you with us on The Safe Side this month. Thank you so much for having me. Y'all have a great day. I remember a college acquaintance once sneering at the common saying that you learn something new every day. Kind of took me by surprise because it's something my dad always said. And while trite, I found it oftentimes to be true. At the very least, though, I would like to think that this acquaintance would agree that you learn something new every month, which is what we're here to discuss during this segment, backed by popular demand. I will get going, and it's something that you'll see online and in the pages also of the September issue, and that's just updating uh, how things are going first uh, vis-a-vis the, the poultry line speed issue. And the USDA's Food and Safety Inspection Service has indicated that it plans to, to study the effects of uh, increased line speeds on worker safety and poultry processing plants. Um, it's something that is being and has been, as you know, as, as you follow coverage online and in the magazine, something that is often bandied about and um, just there's, as with anything, two, two sides of, of the issue. But um, the, the agency is just, again, looking to use some existing data and perform some existing studies on facilities who have received waivers to increase line speeds to 175 birds a minute from the, the current 140 a minute in traditional inspection system. So um, there's there's certainly more online and in the magazine, but um, just again, it was it had been a little while since um, we'd updated readers with that. So it was interesting to, to get back into it. And just because of the ongoing coverage, we'll be uh, interested to, to see what comes of it and certainly expect feedback from all the stakeholders. Alan, uh, how about you? I learned some exciting news uh, recently, and that's that Doug Parker will be joining us for our live broadcast of this podcast during Congress and Expo on the show floor. So, I mean, that's that's incredibly exciting, and uh, it's pretty awesome uh, that we we really get this opportunity to to interview the Assistant Secretary of Labor at OSHA. Uh, Barry, what about you? 
I'm equally excited about that, Alan, and uh, look forward to folks stopping by to to listen in on our, our discussion with Doug Parker. Uh, this month, I learned a little something from our website at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Um, there are 5,000 towing and tugboat vessels, and they move 700 million tons of cargo each year. And that's through our nation's rivers and intracoastal waterways along the Atlantic coast, Pacific coast, and Gulf coast, uh, through the Great Lakes, and in various ports and harbors. And that industry reached a a safety milestone recently. Um, Now tugboats and towboats are required to have on board a Coast Guard-issued Certificate of Inspection to operate in the U.S. Um, And this implementation of this requirement was the product of an almost two-decade partnership between the industry and the Coast Guard uh, to promote safer waterways. And Jennifer Carpenter of the American Waterways Operators Organization, uh, she called this, quote, a historic day for transportation safety in the largest segment of America's domestic maritime industry, unquote. Well, thank you, guys. Always do enjoy this discussion. And as always, we want to reach out to you, the listener. Is there something important that you learned this month? Maybe you'll learn it when you're watching us record live on the show floor. Uh, Wherever you might be, though, whatever you might learn, we would ask you to share it with us via email at safehealth at nsc.org or by using the hashtag SafeSide on social media. Many thanks to everyone out there for joining us this month. Your time is valuable, and we appreciate you spending just a bit of it with us. If you'd like to send us some feedback, you can email us at safehealth at nsc.org. And we'd also appreciate you sharing a rating and a review of this podcast. To find stories such as Kevin's article on first aid response teams and all of the latest news from NSC's Safety Congress and Expo in San Diego, you can visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Also, make sure you follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Original music for this podcast was composed by a friend of the podcast, Steve Maslin. Thank you, Steve. A big thank you to Bulwark FR for sponsoring this episode. We'll be back next month to have more safety-related discussions, talk to some trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile a little. In the meantime, feel free to tell a fellow safety pro about this podcast. And remember, stay on the safe side. All right.